This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. For the last 34 years or so, our next guest has made Shell Oil Company his life. Now Marvin Odom is getting ready to step down as president and director of Upstream in the Americas. Mr. Odom is here on campus speaking today, and great to have him here in the studio. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Dan. Good to be here. Uh, As you're heading out uh, of Shell Oil Company... What's the what's the first what's the first thing you want to do yeah, well, when you when you leave your position? It goes there's, there's, it goes back to your first comment that I've you know dedicated my life to Shell. Yeah, there is a life beyond Shell, so okay. that's the uh, that's the good news. Trip somewhere, uh, you know. There's relaxation. A, uh, it's amazing how much advice you get when you get to this point <laughs> in your, right. your career. So right. most of the advice coming in is, you know, take a couple of months, don't actually do anything, don't plan anything, and certainly don't commit to anything. Yeah. And then start to think about what you really want to do with the next segment of your life. So I will do some of that. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, there's family things that I want to get done that uh, I have a new grandson, for example. Nice. You know, some places I want to visit. Uh, but then the question for me is, you know, how do I now execute on those hobbies that I have and, and somehow stay involved in this business? Because I have no doubt mm-hmm. I won't step away entirely from this business. Is there even a little bit of maybe an entrepreneurial flair to potentially what you might want to do? Like something that you've maybe seen over the course of the 35 years and say, you know what, this is an area where maybe the oil industry hasn't really focused on enough. And, you know, yeah, having the expertise, you know, maybe it's time a, to do that. That's a really interesting question. You know, I've actually have this list of things I've kind of been checking off over the years of, you know, somebody needs to fill in this gap. I've got a a story. You know, there's a little bit of family history here. My father, who didn't even go to university, actually went around, asked a bunch of energy companies, what is it that you need that you don't have? Yeah. Somebody gave him a brilliant idea. He ended up building a business based on on that. So I think the you know, I've always had this eye for looking at uh, you know, what's what where's a gap that needs to be filled. There's a number of those, but the thing I think that at this point in my career I'm most interested in it's where is this business going and where is yeah. energy going in the broader sense? And that's a big question right now because, right. especially with oil, we have seen, obviously, the price just just plummet over, over the last couple of years. It's stabilized somewhat in that 30 to $40 range, at least the, the last little while. For the industry as a whole, how devastating has this been to see oil prices go from 120 a barrel down all the way into the 20s, now kind of settling in that that $35 range right now. Yeah, I think the, my answer won't surprise you. It kind of depends on where you are. So, okay. for example, if you're an individual that's lost their job in this, this industry, sure. it's yeah. completely devastating. If you're a company that doesn't have a strong balance sheet and can't weather this storm, it's completely devastating. If you're a company like Shell that you know spends you know a lifetime thinking about how do you create the resiliency in the company to get through these kind of cycles, yeah. which you know will come, it's a difficult time, but it's a time you're prepared for, and it's a time that you use to make strategic moves as well. So we're just executing on a very large acquisition that uh, that we've been able to to do in the last year. Yeah, and so it you know it creates opportunity as well as uh, as as difficult times. The one question you have to ask yourself, because it's a commodity business, because it's a cyclical business. Is, is there anything unique about this cycle that tells me something different about where things are going in the mm-hmm. future? And this is, you know, a bit of the story, you know, in, in the backyard here in, uh, in Pennsylvania, 
with what's happened with shale resources sure, across yeah. North America, yep. that really has changed the equation a bit in the world. It's, yep. a, it's a big source of supply right now. It's a huge topic here in the state of Pennsylvania. I can, I can imagine, <laughs> and, and you know, happy to get into some of those topics <laughs> too. But yeah. I, you know, I know it's a sensitive topic. Absolutely, in a lot of ways it is. Well. Yeah. So that equation is changing a bit, but uh, but these you know these cycles are not unexpected. You just one of the things you have to do, particularly as a large company like ours, is you have to say. What did I learn in the last four or five cycles? Where did yeah. I make mistakes, and how do I not do that this time? So then, it, it, really, then it seems like the oil industry, as much as they may have diversified over the last you know ten to fifteen years, maybe the greater level of diversification is still to come. Oh, there's no. I don't think there's any question. And again, it, you know, energy is it's not a it's a ubiquitous topic, but every company is different. You know, yeah. depending on where you are, things this the situation can look very very different. But a, a company like Shell, you know, we, we have this vast portfolio across the entire globe um, that's primarily oil and gas. Yeah. But I will tell you that our time as an executive committee for Royal Dutch Shell, as a, as a board, as we look at and to talk about what's important for the company from a strategic sense, it's all about looking forward. And yeah. it's all about looking at how will energy transition over the next 10, 20, 30, and 40 years. And how do we then become the, the company that's in a position to benefit from that? And some of that looks very different than oil and gas. So you started in the early 80s with, uh, with Shell. In terms of how this company has developed over the 35 years, I mean, you've probably seen just some amazing shifts in terms of the company itself. What are some of the biggest points that you remember of your time there in terms of this is going to be a kind of a transformational shift for Shell, but maybe also for the industry as a whole. Well, I think the if you just pick the the big points of change in energy, there's a whole topic of globalization and how that's changed things. Yeah. But let, let's kind of leave that to the side. I think from a from a product standpoint, it was really for us oil moving into natural gas. Yeah. So you know that that had to start you know a decade ago basically, but as a company making a decision, for example, to move more into natural gas than oil. So in the last year or two. For the first time ever, we actually make more natural gas and oil because we think it'll be the preferred fuel going forward. Part of that story is, though, that recognizing when I say that goes back a decade, is just recognizing how difficult it is to shift things sure, in this yeah. industry. It, it's, we're talking about decade-long cycles. And when you're invested, when you're a company that's so heavily invested into oil, and it's been the be-all, end-all for so long. That's yeah. that's that, well, that's and, a huge shift. And the rest of that equation is there's still huge demand for those Absolutely, products. Absolutely, it's, yeah. like, it's like yeah. it's not like the world has decided we don't need this anymore. Right. I mean, there's enormous demand for that, and there's a supply to be filled and an obligation to be met around uh, supplying that energy source. But that's one. And then I think the just the way markets are developing in total is uh, is quite a shift. So how do you connect with a customer? Who is it that's actually making the decisions? Is it the customer making the decisions or? Yeah or some sort of entity or software or otherwise making decisions on behalf of the customer. So there's a, there's just all levels of change happening. Well, how, 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 how does that balance sit right now when you're talking about, you know, you still have to be beholden to your customers, to the consumer out there. Yet, obviously, you get so much data that comes in from, from other sources. It is a little bit of a balancing act right now for companies. It is, but I think the what you can't forget as a company like us is what is your core business? What supports you today? What provides the return to your shareholders that you need today? Yeah, That's core. You have to protect that. Not protect it in the sense of defend it, but protect it in the sense of you know maintain a good, strong business for your shareholders. 
but then while constantly thinking about how does it need to uh, to, to shift going forward. So then, how do you think that the, the oil industry is going to react? Because we you know we hear the stories, and I'm sure you see them as well in the media that you know the oil price is pretty much going to be in this territory for a while, whether it be a year, two years, whatever it is. How does the oil industry continue to, to manage that? knowing that it is such an important piece to what they do, yet also knowing that they have to diversify as well. Yeah, well, part of it I think you just have to take in context. So I remember when oil was 80 90 and then $100 a barrel. Sure, yeah. And if you took the consensus around from all those that comment on uh, on oil prices, it was going to 150 maybe 175 sure. and one big group out there was predicting $200. I think they were talking Brent was, was going to be over $200 right. at one point. So now in a, in a down cycle... It's not unusual to see basically the exact same parties predicting 50 and then 40 and then 30 and then 20. Yeah. So I think there's a tendency to kind of go with whatever the trend is. You have to look past that and you have to understand that this is a cyclical business. There is a supply-demand curve that really matters here. The fundamentals really, really matter. Um, and eventually, particularly because investment in oil and gas has dropped off so much yeah. around the world, this inflection point will come again where there's a supply shortage as opposed to a supply surplus and we'll start to move up again. Now, that does, I don't say that in the way that so we can just relax and not worry about it, this will all change sure. in the future. We really have to seriously ask that question. Is there something different about this cycle than before? As a company, then it drives you to a strategy to say, I need to be as resilient as possible, whatever the oil price is sure. or whatever the natural gas price is. So how do I position myself in the right places around the world and then with the right portfolio to actually be able to weather that storm better than anybody else in the industry. So then with with what has happened the last year or so, and we're talking with Marvin Odom, who is the uh, current U.S. president uh, of Shell Oil Company, uh, with what has happened in the last year, year and a half with oil and, and the price drop, are, are companies almost at a new norm for what they will think they are going forward for the next 30 years? Like, obviously, a lot of people have lost their jobs, as you, as you said. And a lot of the production that we figure we were going to see just boom, you know, over the next 10 years, it, it may be slowed quite a bit. So are companies realizing that, making these cuts, thinking, okay, these are the cuts we will put in place so that we're going to keep this line, tow this line for the next 50 years or so? Yeah, I just don't. Uh, I don't think it's that simple, okay. actually. So, there is a there's a what happens in a cycle like this is you do get to a degree of fundamental shift in efficiency and the way things get done, and, yeah. and learning to do with less overall that we can sustain all the way through the cycle, and we yeah. get a little bit better at that each time, which is why the cost of energy basically to develop energy basically comes down over time. Yeah, uh, but there are some some significant structural shifts. So you you know as you talk about do activity levels in a place like Pennsylvania, are they going to change in terms of shale development? There is so much natural gas yep. that's been found in North America that that undoubtedly will be a slower activity level. They're just, it's much more productive than yep. we anticipated in some ways. There's so much more of it that even with some price recovery, that's going to be a more stabilized level of activity, not a boom bust constant you know swing type of uh, type of activity and that's going to mean that that we're going to see a, a a pretty significant shift in terms of the types of cars we drive you know heating whatever it might be because of the influx of natural gas as you said being on such a, a fairly stable level going forward uh, you know over the next several years no i think it, it changes so many things for this country in particular and, yeah. and and there's so many opportunities yet to be taken advantage of 
But if you think about that sort of supply and, and, and dur durability of natural gas, and let's just say you come at it from an environmental point of view. I'm sure you've had the conversation many times about the benefits of replacing coal sure. with natural gas. Yep. You know, dramatic yep. CO2 intensity reductions. Yep. You think about a, uh, I'll say here's another scenario, something as simple as the northeast part of the U.S., tremendous fuel oil usage, of course, for heating and sure. so forth. This this country has the opportunity to, to make a strategic shift. If it could get its act together around a real energy policy that would say, northeast, I want more renewables yeah. backed by natural gas as the backbone and the, the steady factor in all of this to replace fuel oil and other, other sources of energy and completely change the environmental picture of, uh, of this part of the but country. How difficult does that become to try and enact that type of, uh, of change? Because a as you can well imagine, yeah. one, one of the things we've talked about once or twice on this show is kind of the dysfunction that is yeah. going on out there in terms of trying to get those types of policies, not just the energy sector, but everything across the board, passed and moving forward. It, it's 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 become a a really a slow grudging drawn out process yeah. that that for me I'm sure for you at times it's a bothersome issue. No, absolutely. I mean, I I tend to be a little more on the optimistic side, but that's not because I like what I'm seeing. It's because my nature is an explorationist, sure. and a, yeah. there's just a, there's an edge that way that says yeah. this is how we're going to create opportunity. The uh, I have to say the, the U.S. political system is pretty discouraging in yeah. in, in most respects. But eventually, these, these various goals that are out there, you know, cleaner air, um, less CO2 emissions and so forth, those eventually have to run in head on with the decision to be able to do something about it. Yeah. So I, I don't have any doubt these policies will come eventually. One of the challenges for us as a company and an industry is predicting about when that's going to happen. I'll give you a, I'll give you a real, real example of how that works. So we think a price on carbon, for example, is real enough sure. to where inside the company – as we do economics, as we rank projects, we charge ourselves $40 a ton for every ton of CO2 that will be emitted from these projects. In just because you, you know. In anticipation yeah. of that happening. In yeah. anticipation of that or something equivalent happening in the U.S. Now, does that happen in three years or in 13 years? I don't know. Right. We're talking with Marvin Odom of uh, Shell Oil Company. Uh, we're talking about his career and uh, where the uh, industry is headed. As you're listening to Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. The interesting thing also is that we're also in a time where we're seeing the U.S. as an exporter in the, in the oil and gas sector, which is something that as you sit here yeah. with a smile on your face, yeah. I mean, that has to be that has to be a, you know pretty exciting time. No, it's good. And so here's maybe a counterpoint to what we were just talking about: is here's a political decision that was made yeah. to allow oil exports. Yeah, actually did get done. Yeah. So I mean that's a, and you know regardless of your feelings about oil, everybody should see that as a good thing. Right. Yeah. Because it allows you to just to use the global infrastructure in a way that's much more efficient. And will you know, basically help keep prices down for everybody. So well, that's a that's a good thing. And oil's not oil's not going anywhere. I mean, it's still going to be a vital part of a lot of countries' economies and 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 how they you know how they do business on a day to day basis. It's just going to be the level of other energy sources that it's going to increase over the time. Yeah, and it's a you know I'm going to talk to a, to a class here later today. I think it's one of the more interesting factors about thinking about something like an energy transition. So other energies yeah. coming into the system. Because when we talk about it at a very high level, you get this kind of very smooth over time shift into renewables away from, from some gas or oil or coal or otherwise. 
it looks very different than that on the ground. It's it's dramatically disruptive, kind of to a business oh, or sure. to a locality Absolutely. as those kind of shifts make, make make start to happen. What is that relationship like now between you know core companies that have have lived on oil for so long and the natural gas sector, which is obviously it's 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 here and it's going to grow. Yeah. I mean that's you know as you said, Shell has has made the adjustment to to incorporate both. But but that's that's still probably a little bit of a tenable kind of relationship in some points, I would think. Yeah, and I think there's another dynamic that underlies all this, which is you know, these are public companies with shareholders. Yeah. To a degree, it's fair to say, what do the shareholders want? Yeah. So does, does a shareholder want every independent oil and gas company in the U.S. or oil or gas company in the U.S. to start branching off into other energies? Yeah. Or does an investor actually say, no, I actually want you to do that and do that extremely well <laughs> and make money on the market that exists? And I'll go invest in renewable energy somewhere else. I, yeah. don't, I don't want you doing that because you may not be particularly good at it. You know, I'll diversify. You don't have to. It's, at, it's an interesting discussion that's happening right now. Outside of the growth of natural gas, where do you see the, the, the greatest potential in terms of renewables just in general? Well, I think certainly wind and solar are both, you know, very strong, very viable. Long term, we see solar having the real edge in terms of scale and impact globally. So I, I think, you know, there's still a lot of people that underestimate where solar can go. Well, and I guess it's interesting where solar is concerned because we've talked about on the show is the fact that if you go to Europe, certain parts of Europe, solar is is it. I mean, that that's a, a massive piece to their energy kind of puzzle that, that they put together. Here in the United States, we're still realistically basically in the infancy of solar. Yeah, although although there is you're, so we are, and part yeah. of that's the starting point is just so exactly. small. Yeah, and you'll see tremendous growth rates in solar and in wind as and the prices come down as, and it's more as, affordable. Right, yeah. you'll see tremendous growth rates. But again, we come back to the challenge of scale overall. Is the energy system is so vast? Yeah, that you know, unheard of dramatic growth rates in solar are still going to have a relatively small impact for a long period of time. But even going back to when you started with Shell, I mean, it's it's funny. I, you know, I have to go do some work sometime up in Princeton, New Jersey. So I'm going up along Route 1, and there's a, a massive solar panel farm right in Trent, New Jersey. You know, yeah. in inner city, you, you never think that you would see this in, in Trent, New Jersey. Right. And yet, yet these are the types of things that are popping up more and more all across the U.S., all across the world right now. Yeah, absolutely. So it, And that's my point, that the transition is absolutely happening. There's huge opportunities there from an entrepreneurial standpoint all the way to a company the scale of Shell who now says, okay, with our set of skills and our ability to develop skills, mm -hmm. what's the right business model for moving into this portion of, uh, of energy going forward? What do you think wind needs to do to, to move up the next level? I mean, that, that, that's you, you do see, obviously, that as, a, as a, an important piece in a lot of portions of the country right now. Yeah. But, but it can go like solar. It can go so much farther. Yeah, no, it can. So it, I think we'll continue to see, my, my thoughts on wind are we'll continue to see increases in efficiency of, of the units themselves, so their yeah. ability to generate with X amount of wind. So that will continue to get better. I think the, you know, whether you're talking about solar or wind, the primary thing to keep in mind is there's a place where it works and there are a lot of places where it doesn't. So it's, it's, it is all about location and geography and understanding that this bigger energy picture has got to be fully leveraging things like wind and solar in the right locations. Mm -hmm. But that's not everywhere. So what are you going to fill in the rest of the gaps with? So therefore, how does it work in conjunction with, with natural gas? 
one of the uh, one of the choices to be made, I think, by society. Clearly, electrification is a big one, mm-hmm. and of course, wind, solar, everything feeding into the electrification side. But when it comes to transport and and other elements of energy storage and so forth, this choice to be made between just continuing to build power generation sources and maybe having some new technology around storage versus something like hydrogen. So hydrogen's a a zero-emitting fuel, if you will, just makes water as it gets converted into energy. Uh, But you have to create the the hydrogen, and you can do that through various sources. But to me, this almost feels like a a Betamax VHS kind of choice. You know, that somewhere along the line, governments are going to start to choose and policymakers start to start to choose, are we electrifying the auto system and everything else? Or are we going to go this hydrogen route? For those people that are under 40, they don't know what Betamax is. So, I'm obviously not under 40. I, yeah. I can laugh at that because I'm not either. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, I understand that. So meaning, meaning simply that a, a choice might get made without necessarily every factor being considered. It's just a choice that are made, policies are in place, and it goes sure. down that road. But the other thing about it that's interesting, and you see it as well, is, and you touched on it a moment ago, is just the level of innovation that has happened in this sector in the last 20 years or so. And it's a, like a lot of sectors out there, it's a constant process that this innovation continues on an hourly basis, day by day, week by week, month by month. And it's going to continue because the territories to look at and the ways to be more efficient and more successful in this area are still out there. Yeah, it is. The, The innovation side, the technology side is absolutely incredible. And you know, I know there's a there's a group out there that probably thinks of you know, companies like Shell as dinosaur companies. Yeah. I could take any technologist, real innovator, into this system and put them in places inside this company where they would be like a candy store. I mean, there's just so much happening, really exciting stuff, long range, near term. And you can see that just in terms of how oil and gas has been accessed around the world. Yeah. But then as we think about moving into other other energies as well, the innovation picture for us is – not only the in-house side and having very smart per- people work on solving problems, but it's all about how we partner then, you know, with with the university here, with with sure. think tanks around the world, and so this idea of kind of seeding elements all in all these institutions and being part of that and being tuned into what's happening is a key part of our strategy. Now, I'm guessing that maybe the University of Texas is one of those schools that you would, if you were partnering with somebody... We do a little bit with them. I was, was going to say, <laughs> being a Texas Texas Longhorn, that you are, I figured that... But that, there's a lot on the list. Stanford's on the list, uh, MIT's right, on the exactly. list, Harvard's on the list. There's, a, there's quite a few. And, right? and, and there's so many people that have so many different you know, thoughts on, on ways to change this going forward that, it, you know, I sit here at 49 and I see some of the kids that come here with some of the ideas. It's just, I, I'm like, wow, that's, yeah, you know, it's yeah. kind of amazing. And then, and then we get to the real business factor of you got to sort through all that. Absolutely. Because you have exactly. to make choices. Right? You're speaking today, as you said, to a, a group of students. What, what's, what's the message that, that you're going to bring forward to them today? Well, I think there, there's. I'm going to let them drive this conversation okay. to a large degree, but I do think there's some some things to know about the energy business. One is that you know if you if you're interested in a business that touches virtually everything to do with life, geopolitics, environment, societal yeah. issues, civil society, technology, um, improving you know human life around the world. I yeah. mean, energy does all of those things. It's involved in all of those things. So I think just recognizing the impact that this industry can have and the opportunities that sit inside it is one thing that I would want to leave them with. The other is that this is a this is a you know we're in a system that's changing. It will change over the next hundred years very yeah. dramatically. 
But let's not forget it's actually changed quite a bit over the last one, two, and 300 years as well. So sure. it's really just a continuation of the same thing. But where do the business opportunities, you know, whether you're an entrepreneur or something, somebody that wants to work in a large company, yeah. what are the opportunities that exist in that space? And I, guess, and I guess it's also the fact that, that entrepreneurs can make a difference in an industry like this. I mean, you think, you think of oil and gas, you do think of the big multinationals yeah. originally. But there is a, a place for the entrepreneur even in this sector. They can and do. They can make a difference, and they do make a difference yeah. every day. I mean, I, you know, it's... You have to say that the shale revolution in the U.S. with all this natural gas being found around the around the country yeah. was really driven more through the entrepreneurial spirit of small companies yeah. than, than large energy companies. So, so uh, finishing yeah. up with that, where do you see this, this shale re- revolution going in, in the next 20 years? Because it is, it is such a hot topic right now. Yeah. Well, I think the – I'll give you my perspective on it, which is – there's a little leveling of activity now for yeah. exactly the reasons that you raised earlier. It's, you know, we're, we've now found quite a bit of it. Yeah. Um, it will now start to move with the commodity cycle. So you will see more of a drift up and down in investment depending on what prices are. It's fairly short cycle return. Yeah. So you'll see pretty quick response to the, uh, to the price signals out there. What needs to happen, and this is particularly on the controversial side, so we think about natural gas in Pennsylvania, uh-huh. is you have to have a system – where you have quality companies doing the work and you have a good regulatory system in place to assure that the right things are happening. Yeah. Because there is a right way to develop this gas. And then there's all those things that people worry about when they think about drilling activities and production activities anywhere near where they, sure. where they live. Yeah. Those are not difficult problems to solve. But what you need is people doing things the right way. So, I, so again, I'd come out in support of a very clear, very strong set of regulations that kind of levels that playing field, if you will, for all for the industry that's involved, and and actually from the, comp- the perspective of a company like us, protects us because right. then everybody has to do it the right way. So then, is that message that you know that that it can be done, it can be done safely, it can be done well, crisply, is that message not getting enough to the general public out there? Because you know whether it's the media bringing forth their opinion, you know, the, the state legislators bringing forth their opinion. Is it not getting enough to the people so that they understand, you know, what this process actually is when you get yeah. down to the bones of it so that they can understand it a little better? Yeah. No, I think, the, I think the industry has to take a lot of responsibility here for not necessarily being very good communicators yeah. on what it takes to do it the right way. And really, actually, you know, first just starting by listening and saying, what are all the things you're concerned about? So yeah. we we came out with a program, we call it our operating principles for, for onshore natural gas, which addresses, you know, directly from listening to the people concerned and people living in the areas, air, water, footprint, um, just congestion and other activities as you sure. see increased activities in some of these local communities, specifically addressing all of those issues, being very clear about what the risks are and very clear about how we're handling those and trying to make those very, very public. And we just, as an industry, haven't done a good sure. job of, of closing that, uh, that loop. Great to have you here. Yeah. Thank Great you, to Dan. have you on campus. Enjoyed it. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.